afternoon and uh, welcome to the last in our seminar series on Is the Planet Full? So I'm Ian Golden, the Director of Oxford Martin School. It's been a real pleasure to uh, have had this. I think we've pushed the intellectual frontier and I'm delighted that today we have Ian Johnson who is the Secretary General of the Club of the Rome. Uh, some of you may know it was established in 1968, uh, became famous in 1972 with the book Limits to Growth, uh, and um, is now going through a very deep reflection about are there limits to growth, uh, what might they be, and what might the next 40 years, looking forward as opposed to the past uh, 40 years of experience of that uh, assessment of what they predicted and how it turned out to be. Uh, Ian is a... Um, a very good old friend of mine who was Vice President of the World Bank for Sustainable Development. I really think he's one of the few original thinkers uh, around this topic in the world who helped shape the debate uh, over the last 20, 30 years. He's also been uh, the chair of the Fund Council of the Consultative Group on International Agricultural Research and held many other positions which have been related to resource use, allocation and questions of sustainability. Uh, Ian obviously is not Paul Collier, who was uh, scheduled to speak today. I hope you all got the message that Paul is away and couldn't make it, but he's a, a wonderful substitute and I think a very fitting person uh, to be the final speaker in this series. So Ian will speak for about 45 minutes and then we'll have a discussion. Ian. Thanks very much, uh, Ian. One of the nice things about living in the States, there were never too many Ians, <laughs> but I find now being back in Europe there are a lot of us. Um, thanks very much. Let me just, yeah. What I thought I would do today is talk a little bit about Limits to Growth, which was a publication which in a way spawned the environmental movement from about the 1970s onwards, because it asked some important questions. It didn't always have the answers, but it asked the important questions. Spend a few minutes on what did, what did the report say, what did others say about it, and where are we today, and a few insights. Then I'd like to come on to what I would think of as a moving forward, a sort of more contemporary understanding of limits to growth. And there are three elements to that. Questioning limits, questioning the word to, and questioning the word growth. Uh, that may seem uh, light-hearted, but it really isn't, because we've learned a lot about biophysical limits. But what I'd like to talk to you today about is that I think there are economic limits where we are moving into uneconomic growth, and uneconomic use of resources, and financial limits where, as I will talk about it, the financial sector has not become the servant of managing our future growth. So I think it's useful to think of limits not simply in terms of biogeophysical. The second question, of course, is it limits to growth, or are there limits of growth for what we want to achieve in society? And I will come on to, a, to talk about that, and at the end, a few a few thoughts uh, of my own. What, did we, what was said in 1972? Obvious things, such as the planet Earth is finite. Now, there were those who said, well, it, it is, but it'll be a long time before we, we exploit it fully, but there is a finite Earth. That physical growth, which they defined with five sectors in their model, population, uh, capital, agriculture, minerals, uh, and um, one other, which I've, I've now forgotten. But they, they basically had a, a multi-sectoral model that uh, 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 looked at what would happen with physical growth to the economy and would it, at, the, at some point or other, uh, produce a halting 
or a slowing down of growth. It made the point that growth, in a way, could be made peaceful, equitable, and sustainable, but it would require strong, proactive policies. And what it said, which is what you've heard from the Stern Report and others, the sooner you start on this stuff, the better off you will be. And of course, for 40 years, we haven't done very much. This, is the, uh, this comes from Dennis Meadows, the original author. It's a rather complicated graph of the, of this, the, the world model, which looked at resources, food, industrial output, population, pollution, etc. And you can sort of see that in their view, this is from Dennis uh, Meadows, I was, I was with last week, he, it's, there's a suggestion that we're probably, we're probably on track with the base case that was undertaken. In other words, we are moving along a trajectory where we are depleting resources. We are beginning to see constraints. This was something that was done um, uh, a couple of years ago in the Netherlands, where they asked the question, how is the limits to growth, which was the, the base case, compared to observed global data? What you see is it tracks it reasonably well um, in terms of what was expected. So in some broad sense, limits to growth got it right. But of course, the interesting question is when, does it, when are the peaks? When, and the interesting question, can we tunnel through? Can we tunnel through into a stabilized world or come back down to this track here? Uh, but essentially, there was a sense that limits to growth got some of the scenarios right. It was not a prediction, by the way. It was a series of, of, um, of scenarios. It's interesting to look at what others said. The scientific community was actually generally supportive. What was really interesting was the, the, there was a huge debate, if you look at the literature, of how marvelous it was to use computers for such analysis. It's kind of interesting. That was one of the... There was, a, there was a sense, and I will come back to this because I think we've lost this and we're going to have to come back to it, that systems thinking and systems management is going to become more and more important. Our understanding not just of phenomena but how they fit in a broader context with other systems and the sorts of feedback loops is I think going to drive us towards a better understanding of these limits and, and limitations. Of course, us economists were generally very derisive. There were those who took uh, um, uh, to task the issues of the data and the limitations of the data. Many said, well, limits are, okay. limits are there, but frankly, they're, they're, they're on a geological time horizon and it won't much matter. Uh, there was the, the technology optimists always said, well, there'll always be a backstop technology, so technology will get us out of the, the problem. There was a lot of misunderstanding about this kind of study, and I think this is important as we move forward, that these were never predictive, but rather simulations, scenarios, trying to understand the pressure points in a system, rather than saying, here is a gloom and doom, or an optimistic, forward-looking scenario. It's quite important. From about 2000 onwards, with Reagan Thatcher, we also saw markets will always come to the rescue. Uh, I think this was a very much a dominant theme. It also got us out of systems thinking. Uh, we didn't need systems. We didn't need top-down planning. All we needed was a free, unre unregulated, and unbridled marketplace, and it would somehow come to the rescue. And one quote I really like was that it was a piece of irresponsible nonsense. Uh, I think it's also quite interesting that the sort of social policy community were never engaged at that time in the debate. Today, it would be hard to think of a debate on climate change, on water use, 
on resource use in agriculture, where you would not have a strong presence of the social policy community, worrying about equity, worrying about distributional effects, uh, worrying about uh, gender questions, etc., etc. Not at all at that time. The, the bottom line for me about the limits to growth is it started to ask the right set of questions. And all too often, it seems to me, we've got the answer. Now we have to find the problem. We know the solution. Let's find the problem. And I think there is a lot to be said for re-engaging the debate about trying to ask the right questions sometimes, not just the, the right answers. And I think this is what Limits to Growth did rather well. These are some of the insights that, uh, that the author uh, um, has suggested to me, uh, this notion of the finite stock. Timing is long term. I think increasingly we're beginning to understand non-linearity as, as, a, as a phenomena that we didn't understand uh, many years ago. Um, that the sense that technology advances and technological substitution are important. And we know that, that, that the backstop technologies do indeed uh, offer, offer opportunity and R&D can have a huge payback. But there is a, a questioning now about whether is everything substitutable? Is the, is the notion of biodiversity substitutable? Uh, perhaps it is. Uh, ecosystems, not just, not just plants or species, but ecosystems, can they be replicated and are they substitutable? I think an area for scientific research will indeed be looking at what backstop technologies can we plausibly believe can exist at a time when we're depleting biodiversity or ecosystems and the like. And as I mentioned to you, the social and economic factors were important. One of the, the, the points I will come on to is that the biophysical limits were not the only set of limits to growth. As I mentioned to you, in a sort of contemporary understanding, I'd like to spend a little bit of time on these three concepts, or the limits first and what we might mean by that. And here I would say there's a nuanced view about the biogeophysical limits to, uh, to growth or to, to planetary safety, if you like. There are the issues of economic limits and there are the issues of financial limits. And I think if you don't solve those as a kind of simultaneous equation, you get into some difficulties. And there's a question of that the, the new thinking on growth and no growth is whether there are limits to growth or whether, in fact, uh, uh, growth as we understand it today has its own limitations in terms of value adding for wealth to global society. Um, the recent insights, as I mentioned, are issues of thresholds. Uh, resilience is becoming a new buzzword, and I were just talking about this, that it's sort of replacing sustainability as the new buzzword. Uh, about every 10 years, you need to change buzzwords to get attention, and, uh, and I notice it's easier to get money on resilience now than it was on sustainability, or it is on sustainability. A concept of safe operating margins, a better nuanced understanding of when we might be approaching limits and with what effects, and the types of limits and boundaries that I'll come on to. And I think, in, in, interestingly, another insight is the sort of Jevons paradox coming back to, to haunt us. The more you save on resources, the more you use, uh, is something I think that is, is uh, something people are looking at. This is on more geophysical, but there is an excellent piece of work from the um, Swedish Resiliency Institute by a man called uh, Johan Ruckström and about 14 others, including Jim Hansen on climate change and several others. And what they've done in a very, very good publication, and I have the details here, but I thought it was too much to put up, 
they took what they see as nine planetary boundaries and then they looked at the sort of lower and upper boundary and then they looked at a probability distribution. So what you get is not a simple, uh, we're going to drop off a cliff with population or whatever, but rather, when do you get into the twilight zone? When do you get into the zone where you should be starting to be worried? And they looked at um, uh, nine areas. Climate change is the obvious one, and I'm going to spend a few more minutes uh, on climate change and, and energy as an example of looking at these, these various limits. Ocean acidification, ozone depletion, an obvious one, aerosol loading, uh, nitrogen phosphor phosphorus, global fresh water use, uh, land systems change, the rate of biodiversity loss, and chemical pollution. Very good piece of work, in my view, in looking at a far more nuanced view of, uh, of the kinds of safe operating space and the kinds of ranges of, uh, of boundaries that we should be looking at before we get very, very concerned. And this was uh, uh, something I think is a, is a good framework for thinking about the geo or biophysical limits. Um, I'm going to spend a little bit now on energy and climate change, in large part because it's on everybody's minds. Uh, as we speak, there are about 10,000 people enjoying a nice winter sunshine holiday in, in Durban uh, and with the expectation, the full expectation, that they will come back with absolutely nothing in the negotiations. So it is on people's mind. It might be more on their minds in two weeks' time when we realize what the carbon footprint and, uh, and public sector cost of those negotiations look like uh, when you don't achieve very much, but that's another talk, I think. But I will talk a little bit about the biophysical questions, the economic limits, and the financial limits. And the way I'll, I, I've looked at it, in, in a sense, is to think of climate change as the biophysical, Energy sector is an example of the real economy. I could have put food, the food sector, agriculture sector there as well. And the question that I think haunts us and will haunt us, which is the financial, potential financial limits. And I think as we look at this, uh, this sort of triangle, uh, what I've called the imperfect trinity, the question of finance will rise much more up the public policy ladder than we might think, particularly as we look at the, some of the dislocation of the global financial uh, sector today and the extent to which it will be a servant of driving us towards either a climate change, a future that takes into account climate change or indeed the energy sector. Um, on climate change, just to remind ourselves, I, I, this you know probably better than I, it's not just mitigation, it is also adaptation. And on mitigation, it's a question of improving the energy efficiency, retrofitting the existing capital stock and taking some very big decisions about that, which I'll come on to. Then it's about greenfield sites, new, new facilities, particularly in the emerging economies. On adaptation, it's, it's an infrastructure uh, uh, issue and it's a change of lifestyles and production and consumption uh, patterns. On climate change, on the impacts, we have to be worried about nonlinearity uh, and therefore, we have to be worried about the biophysical effects of climate change, the tipping points and the gradual and growing effects. There are both things occurring. The gradual change that will uh, cause us to adapt, but equally the tipping points uh, that may occur. The warming up, as you know, the negotiators really want to focus on a two degree centigrade world. 
as I will come on to show you, we're not quite sure that that is very realistic. Uh, but as we look at the tipping elements, the potential of, I've listed some of them here, the potential tipping points are likely to occur somewhere between the two to four degree range. There's lots of uncertainty. What you do know is the effects are a big deal and we are very, very dangerously close to not meeting the two degree. We're probably at about a little over two degrees warming and that could result not only in this sort of gradual linear adapt adaptation where we suddenly don't wear ties as they don't in Japan now uh, uh, because it gets warm, they've reduced the air conditioning, uh, we will maybe build our levees a little, little higher but I think the big issues are these tipping elements and uh, the, the potential for them. Here are some of them. I'm not going to go through all of them. What you can see about this, I think it's quite interesting, is it's not a one continent issue. It's not a one country issue. Uh, it's potentially affecting, actually according to this, everywhere except California by the look of it. Uh, I don't know why that is. I'm sure we'll find out. Uh, it must be due to the Republican administration there, I suppose. Um, but you can see the, the, some of the, the, the concerns that we might see major change on these tipping points. And it is, I think, a time to face reality, which in Durban they're not, but um, I, I do think that we are beginning to see the elements of the potential of these tipping, tipping points that will cause not only major biophysical disruption, but of course major human uh, disruption, major economic disruption. This is a, a, a rather simplistic one, but what it suggests is if we continue as we are doing, if you simply do an extrapolation, we're going to end up in a much closer to a four to five world um, uh, um, uh, uh, warming world. Uh, the goals are probably around about the two degree down here, and the proposals that are on the table probably push us somewhere between two and four. There is great uncertainty. And I think the idea of limits is not to f get fixated about a single number, but about a range and a set of probabilities. And risk management, as we move forward, is going to be about manage managing those probabilities and our understanding of risks and consequences. Um, this much, says much the same. It says what we have to do in terms of, of the current reality, which is probably in the red zone already, how we're likely to move up here towards peak emissions and then have to come down very rapidly uh, uh, over the next uh, 50 years or so. We've been using the Club of Rome 2050-2052 as a sort of 40-year look back, 40-year forward as our sort of uh, um, uh, um, time horizon, which is within the life of some of our children. Uh, it's, it's not, it is a long-term in terms of technological progress, but in terms of investment you're making today in infrastructure, let's remember we have 254 nuclear power plants, most of which were built about 40 years ago. The one in the UK is now 55 years old. So we, once we build infrastructure on the energy side, it is long-lasting, and I'll come on to that in a moment. Um, again, the kinds of anthropogenic global warming we're looking at are are probably going to cost us, depending on what the sort of actions, anywhere between 3 to 5% on the one, one angle and potentially up to 20%. Uh, this is an obvious one. It just simply says that the energy sector is central to this story. Um, and let me then move on from climate change to energy. 
we now have a range of cost, costly options, uh, props with the exception of the top one. Most of these are going to in, in, incur costs that higher than we have seen unless we get major technological breakthroughs. This just reminds us of what, what it looked like from sort of the end of the Industrial Revolution to the year 2000 to today, more or less. Uh, the reliance on oil and coal and a little bit of nuclear from about 19, well, it shows 1950, about 1955, I think, when wind scales came in as the first uh, renewable. But as we look forward, we can see under different scenarios uh, the kind of technological and economic choices we have to make. One, of course, is, this, is a very central pillar, is what will the, where will the world lie on nuclear? What are we going to expect from renewables and are we equipped to do so in terms of economic costs? And what might we do if we put a little bit of effort on energy savings, which trims down that massive growth? Broad orders of magnitude, we're probably going to triple, have to triple energy needs by about the middle of the century. Uh, may, most of it will come in the, in the developed, uh, well, this assumes nuclear. This simply looks at, at uh, two big issues. Um, one is carbon capture and storage. A lot of people have put a lot of faith into carbon capture and storage. Uh, there is a sense that it hasn't been tried at scale and that there will be, we may not be as, um, uh, as confident that it will deliver what we want. And there is a major debate, as you know, about nuclear. Germany, Switzerland have taken decisions which I would not be surprised to see them softening up on in the near future. Britain, I'm, I'm not sure where it stands on the nuclear debate, but certainly there's a question about the role of nuclear. If nuclear goes down, then you have to start investing pretty heavily in two things. One is next generation renewables, or, or in fact, perhaps fusion as well, and massive in dip in energy savings, which the view is of the International Energy Agency is you could get a 40% improvement over the next 20 or 30 years. Uh, um, this is coming from the... Just. So, so then let me just conclude on this. What does this tell us on the economics limits of energy? The first thing is not a level playing field. Most countries subsidize one form of energy relative to the other. And uh, when you do that, you get all kinds of distortions. Renewables are subsidized in some countries. Uh, um, oil is certainly subsidized in others, coal in others. So we, we need to think of an economics level playing field uh, where we fully load the prices, which I'll come on to in a moment. One of the things I think we have observed is the long run marginal cost of oil and coal are rising and they're discontinuous. In other words, what I mean by that is when you looked at marginal cost curves when I was doing uh, energy economics, I was an energy eco economist in the World Bank for about seven years, we used to do these lovely smooth curves. The reality is that they're something like this and they're jumping. And as you jump, you get a discontinuous change in, in costs. What we are seeing in, in oil, in my view, is we may be at the point of uneconomic oil. We are not running out of oil, so the limits to growth or the biophysical limits are there, uh, but they're a long way off. But we may be emerging into uh, an uneconomic oil. Why do I say that? When I was at the World Bank working in the energy sector, we figured out very cleverly, and we thought we were clever, that at $60 a barrel, there would be a massive swing out of oil into renewables. And this was the, this was the, the, the green movement's hope, that oil would hit $60. 
Well, of course, it hit $60, and what happened? Uh, and $80 and $100, guess what happened? The oil companies got out of renewables. Why? Because it was more profitable to stay in the oil business, but to go to the marginal oil fields with huge dislocation and economic costs. We now have the Athabasca tar sands, which are a disaster waiting to happen. We uh, have exploration in the Arctic, which could accelerate the release of methane in a huge manner. We have uh, uh, the tropical forests of Ecuador and Brazil, uh, the coast off Libya, uh, uh, and we've seen what happened in the Gulf of Mexico. So what we have is a situation, I suspect, where if you fully loaded these costs on the basis of full cycle costs, damage functions, we may be moving already into an economic barrier or an economic limit that suggests to us that some of these uh, costs, some of these technologies, some of these resources are already uneconomic. But of course, they're financially viable, and that is the big, the big, uh, the big challenge. The nuclear, of course, we all know, excludes some of the real costs and risks and is, has never been factored in with a discount rate that's positive. Um, the, the costs of, of uh, closing down a nuclear plant are 30, and, and in the case of wind scales here in, in, the, in the UK, 55 years out, so therefore they, don't, they, they get discounted back to zero. So we need to set out an, an economics understanding of the limits, not simply a biophysical. Um, let me turn to finance now, which is the other limit. I've, I want to look at where does finance come from. Part of it is from subsidies, and as I say, each country has its own magical mix of what it subsidizes and doesn't, and very often doesn't quite know why it does so. Uh, and it causes all kinds of, of, of distortions. I'll come on to that in a moment. Public finance is another source, but isn't that going to likely dry up, which is pricing policy, price of electricity, internal cash generation, the ability to reinvest, fiscal policies, taxation, direct investment, cost sharing with private capital, and the private sector, where we're already beginning to see the markets are getting too, too short. There's the question of market sector and its link to the real economy, which I'll come on to, and there is a, a turmoil in the financial markets anyway. So we have some real challenges on finance. To give you a sense of scale for energy, uh, about 600 billion or plus each year in capital expenditures, 50-50 roughly, electricity and, uh, and uh, transmission distribution. Probably um, uh, increased oil exploration costs, as I mentioned, are going through the roof. Uh, and um, uh, most of that investment is going to be in emerging economies, at least 50%. In terms of GDP, it's roughly speaking uh, about 1% on average, but as you can see there, varies enormously, depending on how much catch-up is needed, how much population is growing, uh, and uh, how much economic growth is changing uh, um, consumption patterns. But it's, it's a big number, that's for sure. Uh, just as an aside on this, um, if it is about 1% of GDP, and if renewables are about 10% of energy investment, 10 to 20%, the hope that green growth when it's described as investing in renewables, will produce the kind of employment needs we, we have on our books is, is a dream. And that's something, as an aside to this, it's a, another conversation, I think, about employment. But I just wanted to give you a sense of the scale of, of finance. How will it be financed? What are the limits? What are the barriers? I think with, with difficulty. One thing is we have to return to, to systems planning in energy sector. 
because what we've done is allow the market to dictate the, the nature of the system that would evolve. And as a result, we have in, in, invested in almost every country in the world suboptimally. Systems planning, which brings the energy system together and looks at it as a least cost of a system rather than the plants per se or the, the investments per se, has probably cost us a lot of money. Nobody's done that analysis, uh, but I think that uh, going back to thinking of systems would reduce costs enormously. Broad orders of magnitude, it varies, of course. We, the world subsidizes energy and primarily oil at a tune of about 400 billion a year. Very silly, uh, could be used for much more positive purposes. And again, it, it, it distorts relative energy prices. And access to markets is still underdeveloped in, in, in for energy. They're either inadequate or increasingly markets are disinterested in long-term investment. It's a theme I'll come back to in a moment, more generally on, on finance. And we've got the limitations of public resources. We are going to have to, just on energy alone, I think, really up, uplift the notions of where we will get new funding for real investment. I think we've got to look at shifting global taxes to global public bads. We've got to start looking at some form of Tobin-style tax. Tobin may not be the, the Tobin tax, which was on currency transactions, uh, um, currently at uh, about four trillion a, a day, uh, has been lauded as one option. But there's sort of variants of this: aviation taxes, carbon markets, carbon taxes. We need a big deal for funding; otherwise, finance will be as big a limitation on our ability to address climate change as on e as bad economics, and that will be a limitation on the biophysical uh, issues. But it's not this idea of economic limits is not just limited to energy. Um, I could have substituted the word energy in that little triangle for any of these. Water is not scarce. There is no scarcity of water in the world uh, in the sense that you have the technology to make sure it doesn't. What you don't have is the money. So what you have again, just like oil, is a rapidly rising, discontinuous marginal cost curve. As an economist, I think it's a very good way of thinking of the scarcity of water, to think of what is the cost of delivering it over the long term. Financial costs are beginning to close on economic costs. You have a marginal cost curve doing this, but you increasingly have a financial cost. The real costs are beginning to bite. Um, and the subsidy for water is bigger than energy. It's probably about five or six hundred billion dollars or more a year. Forests, we all know that the financial value is a fraction of the economic value, yet it is finance that's driving it, not economics. Uh, and on food, uh, you had a discussion, and so I, I won't go in there, but there is a question in my mind about commodity prices, whether they're too low, because the production of food doesn't reflect the real value of inputs, particularly water and land. And we waste in the world about one-third, one-third in the developing countries, one-third in, um, in, the, in the developing Finally, biodiversity, there was a famous study done by, I can't remember what it stands for, but it's the economics of uh, e ecology and something. It was a major study financed by UNEP and others um, uh, uh, about a year ago. They estimated that biodiversity and its mining, ex exploitation, adds about 1.5, that should be T, trillion, adds about $1.5 trillion per year to GDP as we conventionally measure it but it does so at a cost of about 4.5 trillion 
per year. In other words, it's uneconomic. The mining of biodiversity is uneconomic. Uh, 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 water has got a massive economic cost curve that is also putting pressure on the financial system and forests and food may be undervalued. So let me just turn to the, the final part of this limits on finance. I think what we've got is a real mess in our financial sector. It is rapidly becoming more and more divorced from the real economy. The financial sector has become an end in and of itself, not a means to facilitating uh, a future uh, or future investment pathways. Um, and what do I, what, when we look at some of the figures, they're really quite extraordinary. Credit default swaps, uh, which just basically reinsure, reinsure uh, money moving around, but they don't actually go into the real sector. They don't go into the energy sector, the water sector, the agricultural sector. They stay within the financial sector. Are roughly $62 trillion uh, of liabilities. That's the same order of magnitude as the global GDP today, just to give you a sense. Currency trading is operating at anywhere between three and four trillion dollars a day, um, and yet it doesn't provide any money that goes again into real investment. The UK has just done a, there was a study done by someone from the Treasury or from one of the, the, the Finance Committee, I think, in the UK just recently, which looked at this question in the UK where the financial sector has become really divorced from economic growth. So it's not a servant of growth, it's not a servant of change, but a master of it. And I think that's going to be a very big issue to change as we think about the limitations or the limits of finance. Um, we've also seen massive liquidity dry up for small and medium enterprises moving into the real, the real sector of the economy, fastest in the history of the UK. And foreign direct investment, which is also a, a critical issue for many emerging economies, has been reduced 14% reduction this year but that's really bigger than that when it comes to emerging economies. So the bottom line is the, the limits to growth or the limits to change are both the financial sector not supporting real investment, economics supporting, in some cases, uneconomic change, and of course an understanding of the biophysical nature of, uh, of our planet. Um, this is the same story in a way that economics is divorced from markets, Economic values and market prices are unrelated, especially, especially in natural capital. I think if we have to make one change in the world, it is to get our governments to measure natural capital and its drawdown in a proper way, account for it properly, and reflect investment and policy decisions on the basis of the real value. What we are seeing in some cases, the externality is bigger than the internality. The externality effects are larger than the internality of, on the internal effects. Speculation is cre creating this sort of illusionary wealth. If you've lived in Ireland and have been in the property market as we have, you know a lot about illusionary wealth, I can tell you. Um, so I think we've got to look at some of these real economic values. Social capital is simply not measured. Natural capital is mismeasured. And employment is mismeasured. We understand the price of employment we never understand the value of unemployment. And when a company takes a decision in economics to, uh, to replace, capital, or replace capital with labor, it doesn't bear the full cost of that. It only bears the financial cost. So we have a lot of reordering of our economics to make our markets better aligned and to make markets the servant of economic change, not its master. Growth, the final bit. 
Um, I think the limits to growth spawned an inquiry, it should say, not inquiring, inquiry into new thinking about economics. Were our economics outdated? Uh, They're 200 years old in many respects from Adam Smith when natural capital was seen as a, not a limitation, um, when uh, we were not a highly traded set of societies, a global society, where services were not really part of our story, yet we're still embedded in old-fashioned thinking about economics. We have seen some more recently thinking that has started with the sort of steady-state economy of Herman Daly, looking at saying we, we have, if not a full planet, we've got to recognize our consumption patterns have to change dramatically to adapt to living within our limits. We've seen uh, Tim Jackson has been talking about a no-growth economy um, where, where perhaps we don't need growth to get value-added wealth. We've the uneconomic growth. Daly and Constanza, American economist Herman Daly, at the, was at the World Bank, worked with me for many years and is, a, is really the sort of founding father of ecological economics, believes that in some countries already the cost, the 1% cost of creating GDP comes at a cost that is above 1%. In other words, you're getting uneconomic growth. Uh, and so we have to redefine growth. The final one is a group in London here called the New Economics Foundation, uh, again a former World Bank colleague, um, uh, who are looking at new economics and, and making the case that we need a more human-centered uh, economics. I think we need to get a few things corrected. And the big issue we have in economics and in growth is understanding sequencing, timing, and how policies fit. And I think where we are at a stagnation is that we think we know where we want to be with a new economy, a new economy that's more human-centered, a new economy that reflects the real values that society holds, whether it's on social capital or natural capital. But we don't quite know the sequencing of policies and how to get there. I think this is an area and a space for major investigation. But I think the basics that need correcting, we've got to get economics aligned with finance and into the real economy. There are going to be a lot of debate about that, I think. Secondly, we have got to really look at consumption patterns. The consumption patterns and this notion that growth is only driven by excess consumption, but we got into problems of debt because of overconsumption. We have to break that consumption growth cycle. I think the tail end problems, and by, what I mean by tail end problems is that while a lot of what I've talked about has a distributional effect and poor people get hurt more heavy, with bad policies on, on, on environment or social policy, etc. What we have, I think, is a tail ending of the 1%, and probably a half a percent on the one hand, who are earning wealth that we've never seen before for about 200 years, and at the other, poverty that is absolutely abysmal. I believe that is one of the basics that we'll need correcting. We've got to start measuring well-being. There's a lot of work been done on looking at happiness indicators, etc. But frankly, you can easily get into a situation of, uh, of paralysis by analysis. The fact that I, I'm now measured to be a happier person than I thought I was last year, uh, but I haven't changed my habits, or that I'm poorer or wealthier because I've, I was mismeasured, or my GDP was mismeasured, means nothing unless I bring forward 
the policies, the investment strategies that can reflect that. And I think that is, a, again, the implementation issue. And, fi and finally, on the basics, what we are beginning to see is a new era of public goods, global and national. The public good component of most private investment is getting larger and larger. The spillover effects that affect all of us, whether in the global level, in climate change, national level, regional level, etc. We've got to think of what new institutions can capture that externality, embed it in economic decision making uh, in both the public and private sector, and move us forward. Um, so some final thoughts here. New, I, think, uh, I think the limits to growth is as relevant in asking the right questions today as it was in 1972, but it's, it's in a contemporary setting. Uh, we, may want to, we do need some new thinking um, uh, uh, on the nature range and interaction of natural limits and their probabilities. It's a risk management framework, not a, a, um, a, a sense of, of uh, the linear kind of approaches we've, we've looked at. Um, I do think we've got to really have uh, a, a new thinking on prosperity and growth being defined as value adding to prosperity, real wealth. I believe global poverty and unemployment will remain the biggest issue we will have to resolve, but it will be linked with ecology. R&D in some of these areas will have to be increased. But perhaps one of the big issues here is I just think there is a, a values debate needed in global society that isn't occurring. We need a new era of enlightenment, a renaissance of thinking, a new conversation for a new era. And that will require major communications. And of course, the one thing I would say we're limitless on is human ingenuity. But we've got to harvest it. We've got to invest in it. And we don't uh, across the planet, not just in the rich world. Some final thoughts then, growth isn't wealth, natural capital is mis mismeasured, social capital is unmeasured, the real costs of unemployment are unmeasured, high discount rates encourage short-term thinking, public goods are on the rise. These are all what I would sort of say are the, the, the changes that are needed in, in our economics thinking. Uh, I'm going to end with a bit of an advert about how we've been starting to think about these issues. Um, as we started thinking about limits to growth and the sort of systemic issues, you're quickly drawn that if there are systemic issues, there are, there are likely to be underlying causes, root causes. And the climate change crisis is not so far away from the financial crisis in some ways. It's too sh it doesn't take into term the longer term. It is an externality that isn't priced, etc. So once you start looking at these underlying causes, I believe the first one will be, is there a normative shared value in the global society? We are all global citizens, every one of us. Every one of us has a responsibility to the globe and we're affected by what others do. But we don't yet, it seems to me, have the shared vision of a new, an, an, a new era of a more enlightened uh, um, world. So I do believe the normative conversations about values are very important. As you move from normative values, which is really about thinking, you move into new economics about valuation. And there I think some of the critical issues I've mentioned are how do we really start, A, valuing the things that really matter and putting a, a value and a price on them, but then taking that and making them uh, matter in public policy. So new economics is about measurement, but it's more. It's the link between measurement and the institutions that will deliver our new economics. Uh, what might they be? Well, 
I do think we have to have a major overhaul of our markets to get them to be the servant of, of, of change and to underwrite, um, underwrite uh, uh, the investments and the policies and the actions that are needed in the real economy. I think we will have to have a debate about global governance and I think that will come sooner rather than later. So we're also moving from the sort of measuring into the thinking about the institutions. If I look at the big challenges, I think we have to move towards a more human-centered, ecologically-centered planet and, and, and econ economics to support that. I say that because we've moved very fast in some sectors, such as the financial sector, into where a second is a long time. If you look at currency trading, it's done by the nanosecond. It's done by algorithms that are developed by brilliant people, I'm sure, from this university and others. Uh, it's not even human-induced anymore. It's not driving money into the real economy. So we have to look at what does, we, does it take to have economics and financial sectors that really reflect our own understanding of time span, which is much longer than the nanosecond, and on ecology, even longer than that. And there, I think we have to be very concerned about employment. Um, employment, I don't mean in the formal sense, but work, in a way. We have 1.7 billion people under the age of 15 in the world today. That's either the biggest resource we'll ever have, or it is a social disaster. Depends on us. Uh, we have about 300 million people unemployed uh, in some countries, as in Spain. You've seen what youth employment is. I think it was, I think it was 46% when I last looked. So I think managing our common ecology and managing our common human capital and our employment are going to be the big challenges towards, by the middle of the century, a very different world from the one we have today. Uh, I want to thank you and just say that I realize that it probably is a long way from what Paul Collier might have said. I don't know. I know Paul a little bit. But I wanted to give you a very broad spectrum of, of the kinds of challenges we have, realizing that sometimes it's necessary to drill down on any one of these issues. And on many of them, we could have taken a full day to do that. But uh, thank you very much indeed. Thank you.